Three weeks ago tomorrow, we, Henrietta and I, left Totnes in the west country of England to make the journey from there to Barry, the, the Insight Meditation Centre in western Massachusetts. And we flew out on the Friday morning and began work with Eric on the Friday evening there. And we have been uh, consistently engaged in giving teachings uh, since that time. And while I was just sitting here, while Bill coordinated the uh, video system, I was wondering what on earth I was going to talk about with you this evening. And sometimes one finds after, in this case, after about uh, three weeks that uh, the, uh, what should we dare, dare I call it, spontaneity doesn't emerge quite so easily as it did on the first uh, days. And while sitting here, I was rather reminded of my time in India some years ago now, 15 years or more now, 17 years ago. And I would go to sit with a Burmese Vipassana teacher, uh, S.N. Goenka, who has a center near Bombay at Igatpuri. And he, as he has done now for more than 20 years, has been giving 10-day teachings. And one of the things which I um, marveled at in having the privilege of participating as a meditator, as a yogi, in some of his retreats, was that he was able each evening to give precisely the same talk with, <laughs> with precisely the same stories year in and year out. <laughs> and, and I felt too that the most remarkable achievement of all of Goinkas was that having told each evening some of the same uh, amusing uh, Dharma stories, he could tell them and laugh. <laughs> and I felt this surely has to be a, a clear illustration of the um, freshness of mind in unbelievable circumstances. <laughs> and now I hear uh, Goenkaji now has a set of uh, videos. <laughs> and so at his retreats now they provide a, a television and a video VCR. And the video is played with the more or the same set of ten tapes. <laughs> and so while sitting here, while Bill was setting up here, I must confess the thought crossed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be rather nice perhaps to, for me to, to slope off to the diner while you... Uh, <laughs> or even came out. <laughs> Having waffled through that, I'm still <laughs> wondering. <laughs> so, yes, uh, <laughs> my God. Oh, it's a dry day today. <laughs> so, 
since uh, the thought which was arising inside of me I don't know, in this case I don't know what to talk about, then perhaps I might explore a little bit with you the, uh, the sense of uh, not knowing, the state of not knowing. One of the things which with our, with our education and certainly the immense benefits and the, the spirit of uh, inquiry which takes place with education is that we are often presented within our life a whole set of uh, questions and the questions, the very character and nature of the questions implies that the formation of the question does give provision for the formation of the answer. And we see through the years, and very significant years of course in our life, from childhood, early childhood, right perhaps through into our twenties if not beyond, the interest in the formation of questions with the formation of answer which goes with it. And one of the things which we notice in the formation of questions, whether those questions have actually been generated to us, or whether we have generated out of themselves, that quite often there is a certain, um, not only an, an interest, but sometimes that tinge to varying degrees of restlessness with the question. We wrestle with the question. And we've experienced too in our life when we've been faced with a whole sequence of questions, I'm talking about perhaps examination questions or under questioning, how in the uh, accumulation of questions, we have felt the very pressure of trying to cope with the questions, cope with the form formations. In that, what we also notice in the whole world of knowledge and questioning is that the questions keep providing a whole range of different answers. And when, the, when a certain line of questioning keeps producing a, a fresh range of answers, it requires of us to keep specialising. So we see in the various spheres of knowledge in our, our society that the, the, the desire, the motivation for questioning is there and in any specific area of life we find we have to divorce some aspects of questioning and specialise in a particular field. And so we keep finding ourselves in the pursuit of the answers, going from the general to the specific. And we could take any field and we know how many subdivisions there are and sub-subdivisions and the libraries and the corridors of learning are packed with the literature of specialisation. This in our relationship too, to that, shows too the remarkable capacity of our brain to actually assimilate and acquire a tremendous amount of knowledge. And this knowledge helps us functionally to live, to work in our, our daily life. But the same knowledge too, when the relationship to the knowledge is such that the relationship is, has that unease. Somebody said to me the other day in a note that, that state which in our society of chronic unrest that the very chronic unrest, as it were, feeds into the brain, it feeds into the knowledge and it generates this dissatisfaction. And what we also notice with this movement, with the, the love of knowledge and the, if not the thirst for knowledge, like everything else we keep seeing that knowledge 
begets knowledge, begets knowledge, begets knowledge. And there's no end to, it appears, there's no end to its pursuit. And we see, just as in the same way with that kind of inquiry, we see also with what we call the spiritual path. And what one is hearing in our society to, today is, I think, not only varying degrees of this chronic unrest and all the multiple, multiple faces of this chronic unrest, but also, in a way, it's another way, I think, perhaps, of reflecting a, a spiritual crisis. And that we do want to live our life in which our spirituality is confined to a, a Sunday morning and the rest is neglected. So these kind of activities which you and I are sharing in here and many other forms of it which are taking place, we could say there are people who are getting established on the path. People like yourselves and others with varying commitments and dedication saying, I want to explore this, I want to go into these things, I want to walk this path and, and see what happens and where it leads. But some, and some of you who have had uh, years of exposure and received teachings in, again, multiple different ways, could be described in your commitments and values, in the devotions to life, in service to others, in the, in the meditations and reflections, in a certain economy of uh, living, in the solidarity with uh, like-minded people, the commitment to the teachings, to awakening, the ethical foundations, the, the, the tremendous value of the resources of body work and psychotherapy and other fields. We might say all of those uh, explorations help us, to, according to our needs, help us to be established on the path. So in a situation like, like what we experience uh, here, we may say that there are some who are taking those sometimes tentative steps to say, what would it mean for me to live in a conscious way, to really bring spirituality in my life? What does the concept spirituality mean for me? What, what, what kind of feelings and intimations does that uh, generate inside? And there are those too who are feel well established on the path and who follow, follow that and, and endeavour in as many ways as possible to bring the knowledge, to bring the emotional life, to bring the bodily life, the whole of oneself, one's consciousness, as it were, into the framework of what one calls spiritual life, follow the path. But then one starts asking questions, then starts wondering, yes, there is the, the steps for knowledge. Yes, there is the pursuit of knowledge and the valuable acquisition of knowledge, providing that acquisition of knowledge is with a discerning framework, one is clear of what knowledge is beneficial for life. And one sees, too, that this appears to be no end to the knowledge, no end to the way that we can keep moving in that direction. And then one takes in a rather similar way with the path. There is the path, there is a sense of the beginning of the path, 
There are people that one knows, oneself and others, who one says of them, they're very well established in their spiritual practices, they're very well established on the path. But I don't think being established in knowledge, the most skillful acquisition of, of knowledge, which the tradition, Buddhist tradition, has always felt has been extremely important for a discerning person. And I don't think, too, that the practice itself and the spiritual practice, too, I think they have a common element between the two of them. And I think the common element between the spiritual path and the pursuit of knowledge is that though there is much satisfaction in it, much satisfaction in the dedication and commitment of one's life in these, shall we call it, parallel lines here, or fusing lines at times, but I think the unease will percolate. The unease in the quest for knowledge, the unease in being on the path, the unease of being well established on the path, will at times bring some unsettledness. Because the unsettledness will, if we look and we ask and we stop, will say, there's no end to this knowledge. It just seems to go on and on, and I seem to be involved in, the, in, its, in its acquisition. There seems to be no end to the path. It seems to go on and on. And one for, has forgotten, and one may not even realize, one may not even have been told, what is the end of knowledge? Spiritual life says, there is the end of knowledge. What is the end of the path? What is it for the path to end, for it to finish? And sometimes we are so committed in our generosity of heart and commitments to the beginning of the path, the middle of the path, and sometimes we, have, we haven't taken the risk in a way. We haven't, been, we haven't heard that the teachings are the teachings of the end of knowledge and the end of the path. They are the real heart of the teachings. So when we look at our relationship to the path and its, and its exp exploration, and we see this movement, the directions which I've talked about in other uh, forms over the evenings, take, taking place in our life, we seem, it seems to be in the peculiar position with us, that we have kind of almost have a kind of view, particularly a classical, traditional view of the path. And what we have said to ourselves, or what we have told, or what we have been read, that if we follow the path, if we really give our, our life to its uh, exploration and to its unfoldment, that if we keep doing that, then there is the potential, in one form or another, for some event to take place, and as it were, we reach in a kind of linear way, in a directional way, we reach the end of the path. And in reaching the end of the path, we can, as it were, look back and say, yes, I followed this spiritual life, I dedicated my commitment to this spiritual life, then I came to the end of it, I reached the end of it. And sometimes we ask, we ask, sometimes we ask, 
we read in the books this, we ask teachers this, and some teachers will say, yes, I am still developing my practice, I am still walking the path, I know I haven't reached the, the end of the path, and the view, almost the image, because of the very word path, it's like we're going in a direction, and the path is like it's something, it's almost as though it's a concrete path. And then we're going to leap off into the concrete path, into some lovely ocean of peace or something. Sometimes we hear oh, what, we, what, we, what we read, and sometimes what we hear is that there is a certain event, a signal, an actual sensation which can occur to us at any given point in meditation or out of meditation, in any state of mind, in any moment, and that moment there'll be a kind of cut-off, a cessation of that path, where they experience something utterly different, and then possibly, perhaps, then some experiences, our normal human experiences, our normal consciousness, will renew itself and will continue on our way. In these messages, these teachings, different parts of the world and different traditions certainly go out to us. And in rather the same way with the knowledge which arises. I'm interested in knowledge, I accumulate the knowledge, I explore the knowledge, and then I feel that sometimes in the field I'm working, I um, can't go any further with that knowledge and I end that scope of learning and perhaps in different times in your life you just feel you can't go on learning that particular subject matter. You've ex you, you kind of exhausted the interest and one says, well, I've come to the end of my interest in that learning, I've come to the end of that knowledge. But then, a little while, a little quiet period, a little relaxation, a little relief or whatever, and then the interest in knowledge comes and we start it again. Let me say, is there the end of all of this? All of it, all of it, finish. What, what, would, what would that mean for us? I have, um, in uh, the situation here, in, in if, we might, if I might just speak a little bit about the small group situation and uh, the one-to-ones. The one <coughs> because I think there's very, I like to think, but there again, I've bound to have a jaundiced perception on this one, aren't I? <laughs> that uh, I like to think that the, uh, the small groups and the one-to-one -one meetings are part of the inquiry, and part of the inquiry is uh, looking into things. Uh, one of the things which I have, during the days that we have been together, I have immensely uh, um, appreciated is not only people's willingness to actually be in the small group situations itself, it's no easy um, matter to um, reveal and expose our uh, inner life, our inner feelings and perceptions amongst our friends, amongst our peers, within the context of a situation like this. And in that we lend an ear on other, and in, particularly in the small groups, I think there's a, almost an extra a charge which can take place, certain elements of self-consciousness arising, wondering what am I going to say when 
there's this uh, invitation to say something and, and, and that same kind of uncertainty, not knowing what to say, just as I was experiencing just before uh, giving the talk. And then some questions are, are asked, and one of the things in all of that, apart from the courage to share, to speak out, and I will ask whatever's on my uh, mind, whatever arises uh, for me and I, in myself, if I may say, I ref just uh, refuse to uh, avoid um, asking the difficult questions, just ask what comes. And one of the things which I have appreciated in, in all of this is that in spite of the discomfort that some people are experiencing, because it isn't easy to be under pressure or to be uh, challenged or to be probed or whatever, is that without exception people have, have been saying directly or indirectly, I don't want to resort to trying to answer with my head. I don't want to resort to knowledge about myself based on my memory, which if I bring that in, it might kind of answer in a certain kind of way, but it will answer in order to make the situation a bit quieter. The answer won't, I know, won't make any difference because it's coming straight out of the brain cells. And there has been a real genuine willingness to, as it were, put our brain aside which in our society is a considerable achievement, <laughs> and to feel what one is feeling in the face of the explorations. In that willingness to feel what one is feeling, one thing that one begins to notice in, in that, that there comes the question based on the information, the description of the experience. Then one gives some description of what's happening. Then another question comes, and then there's a further expansion. Then another question comes, and there's a further. And what we begin to notice inside of ourselves, in our feelings and in our uh, uh, responses to the investigation, to the inquiry, that sometimes we're exploring a way to try to understand a situation in our life which we're in. We're trying to understand it. And what we notice is that we find ourselves sometimes very usefully and constructively adopting a position to help us understand something about ourselves. And sometimes we bring forth a strategy, a, a method, a, a technique, uh, and sometimes some insights and understanding. But, because it's my, my job, I keep asking the question. Keep asking the question. In the persistence of keep asking the question, what does happen at times for some people that when the feeling begins to arise, I don't have an answer. I can't go any further with this. And one's, not only one's head, but one's heart and one's inner feelings just doesn't know where to go next. It's like the options in the questioning at times have been taken away, or if not taken away, have seemed rather, um, not irrelevant, but just on the periphery. So not only do we find at times that our head can't answer and can't come up with a systematic, clear explanation of things, but even when we've bypassing that and gone even deeper, sometimes we notice 
and the small group and the atmosphere generates it, we still can't find an easy solution to the problem, to the issue, to the concern, to the exploration. And then we're in a state of, as someone said very aptly, a lovely, lovely word, confounded. <laughs> confounded. And then we begin to look more carefully, what is that dynamic? What is that, what is that re relationship? What is it that's going on inside of me in which I seem to have an issue, I seem to have a problem, and it seems simultaneously, I think, or I feel, one might say, that I am looking at the problem to come to an answer to it. So my inquiry, my observation says, I am questioning what's going on inside of me. As though one part is questioning the other part. And we often talk this in our language. One part of me says this, and the other part of me says that. Well, as somebody once says, one's never alone with schizophrenia. <laughs> so... <laughs> This repetition there of one part trying to solve and bring a resolution to the other part. And in that we think, and, and not, not thinking just up with our head, but even in a deeper communication, that the inquiry to us seems to give the impression that there's this objective part. Looking at an objective experience, which the objective part called, I am looking at my experience, is going to resolve. One part's got the answer for the other part. And the other part, the other part says, oh no, not a... And one finds oneself in a wrestling match. The knower of the part trying to deal with the known part. And one looks at that, at that dynamic, at that tension, at that emergence. One says to oneself, hey, this is all too familiar. I did this for 15 years in school. The knower arising, looking at the known, the knowledge, the information, working with the known, gaining strategies, methods, tactics, explorations, to try to comprehend that knowledge, that which is known. And we bring the same mindset into the inquiry groups, into the one-to-ones, and of course into spiritual life. Then we have to ask ourselves in our honesty. And I think questions in life, inner questions and outer questions and the exploration of questions, which, as, uh, as uh, let me just quote that uh, without going on a, a sidetrack for a moment. Those of you who are familiar with uh, the words of the Buddha, 
he has spoken of seven factors of awakening. Spoken of this quite, quite frequently. Whether I can re remember them, that's something else. Anyway, I certainly remember the ones I want to remember. And the, f the first is awareness. The second of them is Dharma Vichara. Dharma, spiritual life, teachings, life, nature, all this is the word Dharma. Vichara means inquiry. Inquiry into life, questioning into life, investigation, reflection into life. And then he speaks of other factors contributing to awakening. Joy and happiness and uh, energy and uh, equanimity. These factors, putting all these together with awareness and investigation and inquiry, that they provide, as it were, uh, very receptive conditions for our awakening and our liberation. In the inquiry which takes place of one part looking at the other and recognizing there is something familiar about that, sometimes we find in ourselves that some question arises about this. How successful am I as a human being living with the view of this is the answer to that inside of myself. How successful can I honestly say? How much has this really diminished the forces of suffering and dissatisfaction in one's life? So the knower and the known, the relationship of the two, one begins to wonder about this, the part and the part. So in the mood of inquiry, in the mode of questioning, at some point or other, in it, in ourselves, or through the dialogue, at some point in it, the possibility, if not the probability, is that one feels one can't go anywhere. The part is rendered impotent. The knower, the doer, the organizer, the fixer-upper, feels just impotent in the face of circumstances. One doesn't know what to do. This not knowing what to do, not, nothing can, seems to issue forth to fix things and have things our own way, that it's an extremely difficult position to be in. But it's the, in a way an honest position because in a way it's the position which has some authenticity to it. One can't go anywhere because one is, has, feels the helplessness of one part organizing the other part. I wonder what it would be to allow ourselves to dwell with that. I think it's often a very uncomfortable position to, to be in. There's a certain, as somebody said in one of the groups, when one just, nothing is forthcoming, at times it seems like there's a certain kind of vulnerability. 
But that, vulnerab that vulnerability, which sometimes we don't like and we prefer not to have, in a way has its own sweetness to it. In a way, it's touching a place deep inside in that vulnerability. I'm not talking of the vulnerability in normal social terms of being under abuse and under attack and being threatened with a loss of job or whatever. I'm talking of the vulnerability of the spiritual life when one feels one just can't go anywhere. And what that means in terms of the spiritual path. So in our experience of this vulnerability, when we feel it and sense it in our sensations, in our, in our, in our in insides, normal reaction is said, I don't want to feel like this. But if we look carefully at the vulnerability which is present, what is the vulnerability? Isn't it some intimation to us in our vulnerability that there's some idea of going to something else? I feel vulnerable which means I feel something might happen and I'm not sure, I don't know if I want it to happen. Isn't that what vulnerability is? I feel something might happen, I'm not sure whether I want it to happen, therefore I feel vulnerable. And sometimes, as a number of you say, you're, you're all of us, at times, we touch on this place inside. Just through meditation, just through awareness, just through observation, just through inquiry, just through silence and stillness, just, just through the days and the nights. If we can allow ourselves to stay with that vulnerability, which is the feeling saying, I don't know what's happening, I don't know what will happen. And if we can trust the great element of religious life, if we can trust ourselves to stay with that, perhaps when, that, when we are staying with it, perhaps that vulnerability undergoes some transformation. Perhaps there's a certain sweetness in it. Perhaps there's a certain kind of innocence of being in that and it can serve as, as a kind of uh, resting place for us. When we look at the path, if we go back to the path for a moment and the practice. When we look at the path and the, and the practice, in our perceptions of being on the path, if one has a strong perception of being on the path, as sure as night follows day, one will have perceptions of falling off it. <laughs> one will have experiences of losing one's way and getting lost and having doubt about am I on the path or am I not on the path. The very taking up of the path and the res valuable resource of the path will mean that the perceptions will, at times, have to go back and forth. On the path, not sure if one's on the path, off the path, getting back on it. <laughs> <laughs> at least for a week every year. 
<laughs> and this activity, back and forth, back and forth. But when one asks oneself, where is it? Where is this path? Who can actually show where it is? Just like the, the Buddha said of the birds, in the, in the uh, next few months, when the birds leave the uh, Arctic, leave the, right up there in the snows of the, the northern ice caps, and they begin to fly south. It's quite, quite wonderful, right across Europe, across England, and not far from where I live in Slapton Sands. There's a, a small, very small lake by the sea, and the birds right from si northernmost parts of Siberia, start making their journey right down. They stop at the lake every year and then continue right down through southern Europe, across the Mediterranean, through to North Africa, and continue flying right down to South Africa. And then come the springtime, they're back. They make the journey all the way back. And the Buddha said, What's the path that the bird takes? What's the trail? What's the mark? What's the sign? What's, where is the path? Wonderful, these birds. They, they, they come back. Some of them, the swallows, and come back in the summer months to England, as they will do to North America. And they come back to the same house. How have they traveled? Thousands of miles and come back to the same place. The, the miracle, the wonder, the extraordinariness of it. Perhaps the birds, perhaps they're telling us about the path and coming back to the same place. Perhaps the teachings are really there. So sometimes we look at the path and we see in the center of the path that the path, the path, we can't find its existence, we can't find any substance for it. And that actually it's a metaphor, it's a construction which some of us have given a lot of credence to and a great deal of commitment and passion for walking the path. But the walking of the path is in our relationship to the metaphor. Rather similarly, again, with the idea of knowledge. And we think in this widespread accumulation of knowledge that actually the idea is the knowledge is begetting knowledge. That, that we have the idea through the years of our time on this earth, brief as it is, we are really are gaining more knowledge. And sometimes we just take a sentence. Have you ever done that? You just take, just sometimes, just take a sentence, anything, anything. And one just looks at the bare construction of the letters, the spaces between the letters. One can sit in a meditation and just put a sentence in the mind. Each word 
the space between the words and just look at the letter, the construction and the formation or on a piece of paper or whatever. And when we just look in a very simple way and sometimes for the first time in our life we might wonder to ourselves, can I really accumulate that? Can I really acquire knowledge? Or is it the world of ideas and human conventions? Is there really the path in the world? Is there really knowledge to be acquired in the world? And sometimes I think we have run along in our life on interest, on exploration, on the path, on knowledge, and we've never really asked ourselves, is there any truth in it? We've assumed it, and we've believed it integrally. So then we have the arising of the path, the arising of the knowledge, we have the middle of the, the path, the middle of the knowledge, and one is asking oneself, where is the end of the path? And these teachings are essentially concerned with not being on the path, as some might imagine, not following the path, they are essentially concerned with its utter dissolution, its finishing and the freedom which it brings us. So sometimes, when we've been looking at our days here, and the kind of uh, dedications and commitments to spiritual life, one has, may have asked oneself that feeling, that sometimes that vulnerability intimating itself again, what, what, what am I doing? What am I doing this for? What am I following this path for? What does it mean to me in my life? What, what, what's it going to do for me in my daily life? Somebody left me a note downstairs. Please talk about daily life tonight because I'm leaving tomorrow morning. <laughs> 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 Until I read that note, I hadn't realized that this wasn't daily life. <laughs> so, there's the view and the assumptions which help to form the view and the assumptions that I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm going. And there's a kind of consensual agreement about it, yet even in the most strongest consensual agreement about it, thoughts are arising of, what am I doing this for? And one says, oh, those Buddhists say that's doubt. I shouldn't experience this. I have to get over this, I have to make more effort, obviously I'm just sloughing off again. And I've got to really get my act together because I, this is a, a hindrance. This in the Pali word for hindrance is 
Nivarana, not to be confused with Nirvana. <laughs> so the doubt begins to permeate, then the memory comes in. Maybe that doubt has true value to it. Maybe that's the whisper which allows a little infiltration into the construction called path and knowledge. Sometimes we hear this and people say, um, oh, Christopher, I wish you wouldn't talk like this. <laughs> I'm just trying to get myself on the path and you're trying to kick me off it. <laughs> I wouldn't deny it. <laughs> so in the construction which takes place, there's the formation of the fact and there is the relationship to the fact. The fact we call, in this case, the path, the fact that we call knowledge, and there is the relationship to it again, and the relationship to the knower and the known. The follower of the path and the path is once again the part dealing with the part. The duality is reformed again, insidiously, pleasantly, but dualistically. I wonder if life is two parts. I wonder if there's any proof of that, any indication, any, anything anywhere in our sensory world, in our experiential world, to really show and indicate, can anybody reveal two parts? The follower of the path and the path, the knower and the known. So perhaps the enormous challenge for us, for our liberation and for our awakening, is if we're speaking of the end of the path, if we're, if we're really willing to inquire in all of that and take risks with all of that, if we're speaking of the end of the path, we're not speaking of reaching the end of the path and then making some catastrophic leap into something else. Maybe if we're speaking of the end of the path, we're speaking of the beginning, the middle and the end, the total metaphor, the total relationship, the total construction, all goes. A lot. Someone says, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm ready for any of this. <laughs> It might be uncomfortable being on the path and it's not an easy way of life and there are lots of stresses and strains about that but the prospect of... <laughs> what's, the, what's the fear? What's the fear about? What is it that we're... Why is it that we're frightened to let go of uh, the established metaphors? What is it we're frightened to let go of? 
and be vulnerable about in our relationship to the establishing of a particular formed idea. No matter how useful it might be, and I suspect the vulnerability, the susceptibility that takes place is the feelings and the views which take place if I was to abandon it all. If I was to let go of the whole package, the vulnerability is I might find myself back like I was. I might find the rebirthing again of the old patterns of selfishness and self-righteousness and greed and ambition and addiction and all of that will come in and take me. My consciousness will just submit to those movements because I've lost the one thing in my life which has been of value and significance which I call the spiritual path. And sometimes we look at ourselves and as I said, we say, I'm not ready, I'm not ready for this. I just wonder whether any person could ever feel ready. Can any per could any of us say with, with complete assurance, I can abandon all of that and I have no vulnerability to the influence of yesterday into today. Yes, influence of childhood into the present, influence of the unsatisfactory into the here and now. Who could say that with complete conviction? So sometimes we see being on the path is a risk. Exploring it and the commitment to it and the dedication and the passion. Trying to find the end of it is a struggle. And to abandon all is yet another one. So if we're never going to be prepared, and never going to feel, feel ready, are we going to live safe? Sometimes, finally, there is the dissolution. There are some people in this room whom the construction has long been empty. And not that the person has no interest in exploration and inquiry. It's not that the person disassociates herself, himself, from these kind of uh, social environments. But the whole beginning, middle and end has uh, kind of faded away. It's exhausted its usefulness and its uh, relevance. And sometimes there's a freeing, a genuine freeing there from that. As much as there's been the freeing from the painfulness of life circumstances, there's also the freeing from the, the pleasantness of the commitment to a, a meaningful direction in life. And I think too, if we're to speak of meaningful directions, then surely it has to do with ethics, it has to do with meditative awarenesses and inquiry, has to do with a life of wisdom and heartfulness. If we speak of meaning in life, it surely has to be of that order which we call the path. And the person is seen as, as a path, as a model, as a reference point. It's, it's gone, it's finished. 
but very easily in the freeing of that, how easily not taking up a position, the mind can then grasp onto a, an ultimacy, onto a transcendent position, onto a liberated standpoint. And in the grasping hold of that liberated standpoint, that position, the revelation of the grasping will be the disparaging of path, will be the undermining of people's needs, it will be the fixation that everything is just language and just metaphor, and it will be taking up a position born not of liberation, but born of grasping, born of holding onto an idea around the freedom. And sometimes one hears this and one sees this, people grasping emptiness, grasping ultimacy, grasping truth, grasping transcendence, grasping God. And it's a great pity, in a way, if we substitute one form of grasping, the grasping born of time, past, present and future and path, and generate another one which we call truth, God, ultimacy, realization, emptiness, whatever the language. So our freedom in life, our liberation, our, our awakening, is of such a dimension in a way of such an order that we neither take up a position on ultimacy and a position on relativity, a position on time, past, past, present and future and practice, and neither a position on timelessness, no path, no practice. If freedom is to shout in this world, if freedom is to be as obvious to us as the hands on the end of our arms, then it surely has to be freedom in all the directions. Otherwise we are prisoners of our position. Neither relatively or ultimately nothing is worth seizing on to make a position about. Nothing worth being identified with this world. Nothing of all the manifestations is worth being identified with. Out of that is a freedom which is joyful, sweet, kind, unstoppable in its friendship to life. Because it knows the tyranny of grasping, the misery of holding and clinging and possessiveness and positioning. So with our inquiries and our looking into things, let's not be afraid to inquire into what is precious, such as the path. Let's not be afraid to inquire into practice. Let's not be afraid to inquire in such a way that we remain forever wondered and bemused by our utter inability to explain it all.
that somewhere in the midst of it, in an extraordinary way of this life, with its vastness which we can hardly touch, I think is a some wonder of it all that our questioning is a mode of our answering. Our very questioning is our answering. And somehow or other in a mysterious and unfathomable way it kind of reflects the nature of the universe. It just cannot be contained by an answer. It just cannot be defined and framed by an opinion. And thus, the universe is really, it's like, it's a, it's a state of awe. And the awe of the question is the awe of the trees and the flowers and the sky and the earth and human beings and the the creatures beneath the ground and on the ground and in the air. And all of that, in a way, is the revelation of absence of path, absence of knowledge in the conventional sense. May all beings explore into the nature of things. May all beings be touched with wonder. May all beings understand the end of formations. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we?